All right, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. My guest today is Hugh Rhodes. Hugh is the founder and CEO of a company called Friday that is a really fascinating company on, on data privacy. Hugh, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me. So let's jump into it then, but you also have this kind of crazy and fascinating background, so I, I'm not going to let you leave without talking about that too. Sure. But, but, I want, but Friday is a really f- interesting company to me. So let's start off with the basic problem. It feels like everybody knows that they don't have data privacy. Everyone knows that that's wrong, but it feels like generally people don't really know much else or what to do with it. How would you describe the problem that exists right now in with data brokers and, and with data privacy? Yeah. So basically, for those who don't know what a data broker is, there are companies that monetize your data um, that you've never heard of. In fact, the state of California has a definition for data broker, which says a company with which you have no relationship, um, but who monetizes your data. There, you can go on the Attorney General website for California, and they list about 490. So the problem with this is, if you go to that website, you'll see you've never heard of most of these companies. Maybe a couple. Well, there's a couple surprises. First, most of the companies you've never heard of. Secondly, there are companies you have heard of that you didn't know were selling your data. So give us a couple of examples sure. there. Oracle, NCR, like just it, it, the companies that Deloitte, Deloitte is a data broker. How did that happen? So, you know, I, I think what's, what's at stake here is not, I mean, privacy is important. But for me, privacy, it's, it's more about power. Um, it's not about withdrawing from society. It's about you determining what happens to you physically and also digitally. And this is just an, uh, an imbalance of power. There should not be companies out there with whom you have no relationship, you've never even heard of, who are making money off of you. That just feels wrong. So, so this concept of self-determination is a very American concept, right? It's sort of what, what produced the, the country in the first place. Why don't we have that when it comes to our data? I, I think it's an evolution. And actually, I do think that GDPR and CCPA did this big shift where they, they brought our digital self closer to our, our personhood. Um, you know, I think this is just an evolution. We didn't have digital that long ago. Everybody understands physical labor, everybody understands personhood now, we had this new thing, and there's been a realization that, wait, this is also part of me, let's reclassify this from something that you can own to something that I have a right to. So you mentioned GDPR, which for listeners who don't know, is is a privacy framework enacted by the EU that does give significantly more protection to individuals. You mentioned the CCPA, which is the California version of GDPR. what is so what's in the water in California and Europe that's not in the water everywhere else that we don't have these kind of protections already? I, I can't say. What's interesting is that in theory, this is one of the most bipartisan issues. Warnock and Rubio uh, proposed joint legislation around privacy. Nobody disagrees with this, weirdly. I mean, our, you know, the dysfunction of our government aside, um, you do see there's strong interest in Colorado. Virginia passed the law, Utah passed the law. Um, I think what's going to happen, quite honestly, is what happened with data breach. You know, for those of you who don't know, data breach started in the the regulation around data breach started in around 2005. But there is no federal data breach law. There's just so many state laws that now it's just assumed that it's a federal thing. And I think that's what you're seeing. Certainly, with the global companies that have to operate under GDPR and CCPA, they've adopted a global attitude. 
There's other rights like data portability, which go even farther than data portability is your right to take your data from one platform and take it somewhere else. That's the law in many more countries. So you're getting this kind of coalescing, coalescing to default that this data is part of me and I should be able to do what I want with it. I would love to see something federal or on more states, but for all intents and purposes, a consumer can act like it's their data now and most most digital providers will agree. And what um, what's the tipping point in the number of states where it just becomes inefficient for a provider to not comply with the tougher standards? I feel like, um, if I remember correctly, data breach became default national around, I think, 23 states. Mm -hmm. I think 38 states now have a law. So, um, but again, for small companies, you know, for something that's... If you're a law office and you have a data breach, you're going to do something about it. That's how prevalent the data breach law is. But on, in terms of data privacy and your right to your data, again, all the large companies already default to this because Google can't set up 50 different versions of Google. So uh, with respect to your right to be forgotten, your right to know, your right to, be, uh, to opt out of sale, um, your right to download your data, most people can do that now wherever they live. So how much is my data worth? Um, okay, so I went through this exercise. Of the 490 data brokers in California, I removed Oracle and NCR because I wanted to come up with a number that was defensible. And if I add Oracle's revenue in, I'm going to sound right. crazy. Right. So I removed all the, the big companies. When you're left with the pure play data companies, 400 data brokers... Last year, $69.2 billion in revenue. Um, that is only third-party data. You could make an argument that you should add all of Google and Facebook's revenue in that, but just from a third-party data market perspective, 400 companies, $69.2 billion. And, and, so, and who's, who's buying it? Um, so what the data brokers understand which actually we as consumers must understand and Friday is working towards, is the realization that data is what's called non-rival. Non-rival just means you can sell it a bunch of times. You sell the same thing over and over. You sell your house once, you can sell data infinite amount of times without diluting the value. And that's what the data brokers do. So Experian, for example, will sell your credit file wholesale to a bank for 21 cents but they also sell background checks, they sell credit monitoring. There was a large bank that wanted to issue a competitor to the black card, American Express black card, and Experian, Experian sold them like seven different products, share of wealth estimator, future wealth forecaster. It's this insatiable need for indices. Uh, they basically take your same data set and they just make data products out of it and they re-monetize the same asset over and over and over again. And that's how you get to 69 billion. Okay, so your solution is your company, Friday. That's right. Um, what does it do, and, and how do people take advantage of it? Uh, well, there's two parts to it. There's the privacy part, and there's the opportunity. And I really do believe that those are two sides of the same coin. On the privacy side, we've built an app which, starting with the hardest privacy problem, at least tries to offer some protection. The hardest privacy, privacy problem to solve right now is your location history. Dobbs certainly brought a lot of light to this. Reports of bounty hunters and vigilantes buying location data for women um, for where they'd been. So that those data brokers buy and sell 
the mobile ID called the advertising ID or made on your phone. Friday's privacy app pulls that MAID off your phone and then we've identified the 60 data brokers that deal with location data and we send them cease and desist letters for you demanding that they stop selling it and then report back to you. We've started with this problem because of all the privacy problems to fix, this is the one you can't do on your own. You can write a letter with your name and address to any of these data brokers and they will honor it. It's extremely tedious. But you can't do that for yourself with your mobile ad ID because you can't see it from your phone. So we're starting with the hardest problem. But the goal with the privacy side of Friday is let's make it easier for you to stop your data from being sold if that's your priority. The thing we're building now, focusing on Web3, is you shouldn't have to put on a tinfoil hat. You shouldn't have to withdraw and delete yourself. All this data is incredibly valuable. It's now yours. Thank you, legislation. You should be able to retrieve it all and then deploy it as you want for your own benefit. It has tremendous value. You shouldn't have to abandon it and just start afresh in Web3 if that's your interest. You should be able to download it and use it and monetize it. And that's what we're building. So, in, in, right. So, like, I think everyone listening right now is like, well, how would I? You know, it sounds great to everyone. Sure. I, I create data. I'd love to monetize it. Um, how would one go about doing that? Or maybe the, the better question is, how are you guys going about that? Sure. So you do have the right to data portability. If you go to Netflix or Google and navigate through your privacy section, you'll see a little link that says download. It's your data, you have the right to it. Um, my Netflix file is 14,500 records. My Spotify history is 9,500 records. It's incredibly detailed. Netflix, for example, in addition to capturing every single thing I've watched and the timestamp and the range, also captures the device that I used and the, even the dimensions of the device. So Netflix has the make, model, and size of my TV for every snippet I've ever watched. So that's there. So what we do is we automate that retrieval process. And I don't want to uh, go into too much technical detail, but in the same way that Venmo connects your bank accounts for you, you give us the right to log into your accounts for you, and we'll pull this data down and we keep it on your phone. It's your data. It doesn't go online, it doesn't go in the cloud, it should never be anywhere but with you on your device. I have a quick, quick yeah. just question yeah, about that. Does Netflix yeah. have um, location data with that too? Do they know where you watched it? I didn't see that in my phone. Um, so uh, we pull that data down for you and, and then what we're doing is making a new type of smart contract. And is it okay to just fluidly yeah. move into Web3? Is yeah, that, to okay. totally. That, you, you can even use profanity if you want. Okay. Um, <laughs> so we're making a new type of smart contract, which lets you then represent the existence of this data without actually sharing it. And what you sell is not uh, like a contract or a token, but you sell a license to query. We were very proud of ourselves for being able to reproduce this on the blockchain until we realized that we had just made a digital license. Like, you know, when you go to Microsoft Word, you don't own the code base, you give them a code, they let you use it. This is the same mechanism. So we're using the blockchain here for audit and transparency. So you own your data, it's local. But the gateway to that data is this smart contract. We're calling it a plus NFT because we're adding functionality, we're adding query and license functionality to this NFT, but it's yours, you can't sell it and you represent to whoever wants, hey, I have this data. It might be a data file or it might be a composite of data. And if the buyer wants to pay, what they buy is the right to query. And they can go back and query the underlying and return it. Should I? Yeah, no, no, that makes sense. So, you, so j just to summarize, you're making the match. So effectively, rather than a data broker taking your data without you being aware or without you consenting to it and selling it to someone else and making money on it, 
the individual becomes Microsoft in, the, in this equation. They own their data. You're creating a marketplace where they can sell their data. Um, and so there still is transfer of data and even data brokerage in a way, but it's controlled by the individual and they profit from it. And I would go beyond and just say, I mean, so many people have been trying to crack this problem. And the reason they haven't is because they don't know how to follow the money, right? It's like healthcare. You can't disrupt healthcare if you don't know how to follow the money. In this way, you don't make any money selling data sets. You make money selling queries. That data has value in aggregate. So we will also automate the, the you know, it's, it's not like we're going to make a business come to each one of you. They will present a desire for something. If you want to participate, great. You, you license access to your data, we'll retrieve and deliver. And then actually, right, and we'll distribute whatever the fee is to the individuals. The, the, the key point here is we're going to replicate to the best that we can the, the tools and services that the market needs for data. You, you can't turn the lights off. But at the same time, and, and for, quite honestly, we don't want the lights turned off. This is the problem with the privacy market is that you, it, the solution that's been provided is fear-based, that somehow we should withdraw, that we should all you know, set up windmills and go off the grid. But we don't want to. We, don't, we want to be engaged. We actually want to share and explore. We should have that right. We shouldn't have to have this uh, kind of surveillance component of the economy when we can just directly engage. So it's Friday's responsibility to make sure that this is as easy for you as possible. You download your data, it's on your phone, and then we'll go do the business development to find the firms that want the survey data, that want direct marketing, that want all the other things that they get. It'll just be permission-based for you. So first of all, you'll be able to set how easy or hard do you want this? Mm -hmm. If you want a dashboard where you're dialing everything and this is DIY, I mean, it is crypto. You can do that if you want. You can rule your own. But if you just want to set it on default and when good things come to you, we'll deliver them, that's fine too. So how much volume do you have to have to become a player in this market? In the sense of, I'm the credit card company that wanted to create a, a black card competitor. There's a whole bunch of different queries that I want to be able to make. I'm coming to Friday when you have what, a million people, 10 million people, 100,000 people? When, when do you cross the threshold? Um, right, so uh, I, I, that sounds like, if, the, if this was a VC, this would be like a go-to-market question? Yeah. Like, right, okay. So I, I think that we have a couple of forks. I, I would say three different forks. First, because this is crypto, there, there's a component of people who already believe their data should be valuable. I mean, identity was in the Ethereum white paper. So for them, we are minting a token, not for US citizens, not for US citizens, but for the rest of the world, if you want a token in exchange for your data file, great, and we'll be able to do that in a month or so. So you already believe your data should be valuable. We're making fry tokens, not in the US. If you want, we'll download your Twitter data for you, we'll put it on your phone, and we'll give you tokens and airdrop in advance. So we're definitely gonna use, uh, the and, and we're gonna publish this in our, in our white paper. We'll explain our logic, we'll explain the the fact that as more and more data accretes, it becomes more and more valuable, and if folks want to participate, great. Um, we're also going to do BD to prime that pump. So, for example, let's say you were a major ticketing platform and you are now getting threatened with breakup by the DOJ, the Attorney General from Tennessee, and the Attorney General from California. Why? Because you came up with this indice called True Fan, right? For a very popular music star. 
But there's nothing to that true fan. It's just a code. A bunch of bots got it. And when you did your ticket release, you ended up shutting out the true fans with the bots. And then because you control the secondary, those bots ended up flipping the tickets for 10x the price to the very fans who were hoping to get the tickets uh, while they were waiting. So nightmare debacle. In, in that particular case, this for Friday would be for relatively straightforward. Um, we would create a true fan NFT where the data criteria is the composite of the things that make a true fan. Listen on Spotify, watch on YouTube, follow on all the social. These are all data sources that are acquirable. So if the fan wants, we will go pull that for them, interrogate that data, and if they meet the criteria, meet, mint the true fan NFT. And in this case, the handshake is between the ticket platform. I, I want to give tickets to the top 500,000 true fans as ranked, and then I submit my credential, and it gets queried and verified. Right. So, if I, you know, if I'm ticket master, I'm trying to do a deal with you as quickly as I possibly can. I, I would just say, what I would just say is, I've, I've been doing BD my whole life. I made a living doing BD in very difficult markets. I, this is not a hard sell. I have not had a hard time selling this because the data is ungettable. You don't even have to be acting in self-defense. A simple example, back to Netflix with the device data. When you go to bestbuy.com, we trace this, and as best we can determine, they make 660 calls and subcalls out about you in that first session, just www.bestbuy.com. Some of those queries are, are you North Korea trying to crack, trying to, right, trying to hack us? But a lot of them are, who are you and what can I sell you? All the ad tech companies they, they send queries out to, I think they even outsource their product hero suggestions. Someone's sitting on the catalog and, and they'll send you the session and the service is like, hey, show them this. Like literally, I think that they've outsourced all of that. And it's terrible. If you go to bestbuy.com, I guarantee, no offense, Best Buy, if you're listening, although they, call they me. are huge listeners. <laughs> they are, and listen, they're our biggest sponsor. Best Buy, happy to do a deal if you want to talk. I can help. So, um, right. But in my Netflix history alone is just the actual devices in my house. So if Best Buy will pay honey five to 10% for a blind lead, the, the ability just to look at what I actually have, the most recent, back to the dimensions of my TV, this is not a hard sell. The data is incredibly valuable. Only the consumer has the right to pull this. But once, once you acknowledge that, once you stop trying to be a middleman and actually acknowledge all power goes with the consumer, we're just gonna completely line up behind the consumer. We're gonna pull this data down for the consumer, earn their trust, and then we'll go do the BD. It's incredibly valuable. So you mentioned a few numbers. You mentioned that the industry itself, even taking off Oracle and NCR, is about a $70 billion industry. You mentioned you were just giving an example of, of a query, but to 21 cents, right? How, how much money can, if someone's on the platform, they're doing nothing, they just turn it all over to you guys, is this something where they can make in the course of a year five bucks, 50 bucks? Like what's, what, what's the upside for the consumer? Um, so Experian did 1.5 billion North America revenue alone. That's one data broker, um, and there's 280 million adults. Um, I, I don't have a precise analysis for this, but we estimate conservatively we'd be able to get a consumer between three to 500 bucks a year. Yeah, so very much worth people's time. But in the kind of uh, Alaskan sovereign wealth fund kind of way, right? Like in Alaska, sovereign wealth fund, Alaskan citizens get a thousand to two thousand dollars a year. It's not universal income, but it's valuable enough that it's become this unquestionable staple. And I do believe that by people leveraging their own data, 
we can meaningfully contribute to their financial lives. Although, you know, not everybody wants money, right? So back to Netflix. In addition to like, like I'm it's just such fantastic data that you can just, it's easy to imagine the workhorse. But um, yes, Best Buy should give you a healthy discount for the ability to look at your data. But how much is Paramount Plus gonna give you to look at it? Just in terms of like a year free, six months free. Like it's the, the value that you will get from the data may very well be in kind and in money. So one of the things about it is crypto, it is Web3, there needs to be a fee, you will get money. But we also think a lot of the value will just be more akin to the, the, the thing you, the, the exchange for the value will be in line with the reason you have the data in the first place. In the case that I was talking about with the, with, with the ticket platform and the musician, those fans don't want money, they want access. Mm -hmm. The data proves that that's what they want. That's how they've spent their time, listening, watching, following. Money would cheapen that. Yeah, just to be, as someone who spent four hours online for the tickets on behalf of my daughter, yeah, I didn't want money. I wanted right. access. You want the access, and and actually, this is the 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 great thing about uh, personal data, but also the tricky thing is back to privacy. Fear isn't going to motivate people to actually take their data back, nor is money. Um, you've got to give them the things that sort of stir their hearts, right? You've got to give them the thing that they are passionate about. And if you look at Web 2 today, maybe not when we started, maybe when it started, it really was to get together with each other, but it's so lopsided now. We lavish our time and our attention around creators, celebrities, fans, sports. This is where all the data is accumulating. They are the catch basin. All these influential people are the catch basin for all this data. So the deals that I'm exploring, yes, we actually have talked to the ticketing platform and they're interested in starting integration talks with us. But I'm also talking to the sports teams and the leagues and the teams that want that data and what the fans want in that case is access to the thing the leagues, the sports, the celebrities have. So there's money, but there's money, but I don't think money will be the main draw. How do you guys make money when it's an in-kind trade as opposed to people paying cash, a buyer using cash? We probably won't. I remember reading a really smart quote. Someone said the reason Google is so successful is because they give away 99% of the value. We, we, we are going to, the, the protocol, Friday protocol, will take a small piece of all the data transactions. The majority goes to the consumer, but, but the protocol will take a small piece. But if there's in-kind, and that just fuels the downloading and the aggregation more, that's fantastic, right? The, the, you, you don't need to insert yourself in the middle of every transaction because the main goal is 100 million people all aggregating and pooling their data. 100 million people, right? And if, I think it would be, that, what's that expression, penny wise, pound foolish? Mm -hmm. uh, the more we can get Paramount to incent, the more we can get even Facebook, some of these other companies to incent, the more fluidly this gets, the more fluid it gets, the more data under management by the collective, by the group, the better we are. Um, so we talk about regulation a lot on this podcast. If, if you could wave a magic wand and create any regulation that would do two things, one, protect American consumers, two, give Friday the best opportunities possible, what would you do? I would give every consumer the rights under California. California did something very smart, which I like. Uh, it looks like GDPR, 
but they came up with this idea called an authorized agent. And an authorized agent is the entity you can anoint to exercise your rights. But what they did is, uh, you can appoint anybody to exercise your rights if you give them limited power of attorney. But what California did is for privacy rights, you don't need limited power of attorney. You just have to give permission. I would waive for every American that they could have the full rights in California and that they could appoint an agent to exercise those rights. Because what you see is the industry has technology and automation to make their side of the equation easier. They don't even actually ever have to read any of your demands when you ask for privacy. They can have machines answer them. But you can't have a machine to submit them. The, the, the way the law is, without an authorized agent, you have to write every one of those 400 companies yourself. It's crushing. So I just feel like it needs to be equal. I don't even, you know, I understand businesses have to automate. Consumers should have the right to automate. So the short answer to your question, everybody gets what's in CCPA, mm -hmm. including the authorized agent. Great. And look, I agree with you. This is an issue that has bipartisan support. It pulls off the charts. And I do think, and I think Washington, meaning the White House, people in the House, are aware of the idea that if they feel the need to try to accomplish something in the next two years in a divided Congress, tech regulation, whether it is privacy, antitrust, Section 230, um, becomes something that, that they can do because everyone, even if for different reasons, um, wants to see this stuff happen. Um, but but you have a very personal reason for how you got into all this. Usually on these, you know, I'll ask someone like, hey, what, what made you choose to do this? And it's like, well, I ordered this tennis racket and it just didn't show up and they wouldn't give me my money back. So I started off this new startup, right? You're a little deeper than that. Tell us the story. Sure. Um, so uh, I was raised in a cult. Um, I called it a commune for a long time. I don't think that's unfair. I mean, cult invokes a lot of ideas. Um, and we were on the benign spectrum. Not harmless, but benign. So you were like born, where'd you guys live? So my mom was a single, she was a hippie, single mom. Um, she was born to Orthodox parent, Orthodox Jewish parents. And I think she didn't feel like I'm a mixed child. And in the 70s, I don't think like a kid who was clearly biracial, single mom in an Orthodox community. I don't think that that wasn't the most welcoming for her. And she started looking for other places. We went to ashrams, we went to psychics. And then she came under the influence of this woman who had started her own religion. Um, and I would say we started peripherally, maybe when I was in first grade, but by the time I was in second grade, this is what we believed. Uh, we lived in New York at the time. And then when I was 12, the headquarters were in California. And so my mom moved us to California to be in the headquarters of the cult and live communally in this cult. Um, Unfortunately, three months after she got there, she died and left me in the care of this cult. Um, so the benefit of communal living is that there's community. And I think a lot of kids who have a parent die when they're young have it much worse than I did. I was in a community of people who actually took care of me. Um, she knew some people who were there. They acted as my guardians. Um, now my, I call them mom and dad because I'm... 15, this was when I was 12. Um, and, and I lived in this community in California. And, and actually, it was pretty great. We, if you've ever been to Pepperdine mm -hmm. in Malibu, and then you head inland uh, um, on Las Virginis, where Las Virginis meets Mulholland, the, the old Gillette estate is there. And that's where we lived, right there in Malibu. I mean, yeah, it was pretty, pretty amazing. It yeah. was pretty great. <laughs> and, You're uh, making cults sound pretty appealing. It, right it, and, no, it is a wonderful slice of time. Uh, but then, unfortunately... This was the 80s. Um, 
the cult leader had this weird mix of kind of new age uh, philosophy and very 1950s Jersey Shore conservative thought, you know? Um, and when the movie Red Dawn came out and portrayed this fictional takeover of America, I believe she felt like that was prophetic and it was really going to happen. And she, so she decided that because the Soviets were going to invade us physically, we all had to move to Montana uh, to get ready. Uh, so when I was 16, they, we all moved out to Montana and that sucked. Uh, it was cold, it was like we were all poor because there was no work. It was just a really, really unpleasant time. Um, and before I say about how I got out of that, I do want to talk about the one downside to the cult was that it was, we were surveilled. It's cliche. I, I don't think you can possibly exert a population over uh, power. I don't think you can exert power over a population without surveilling them. It always goes hand in hand. And we had no privacy. We weren't allowed to be alone with members of the opposite sex. Any conversation we had could be listened to. They opened our mail. Um, when you're young, that doesn't matter as much. But as soon as you get older, you realize how absolutely stifling it is. And even more so for the adults who really were kind of crippled by this fear and anxiety of constant surveillance. Not only by the religious leader, but also by her, uh, you know, her apostles. So this power was distributed among other people. It was very, very, very intrusive. Um, but it was all I knew. Um, so when we moved up to Montana, I really started acting out and getting in trouble. Um, my mother had left me a little money when she died. So the people watching over me, my guardians wanted to send me to military school to straighten me out. I think really just to kind of get me off the campus because I was causing so much trouble. I found a book with all these crazy boarding schools that I had never heard of before like Loomis Chafee, what kind of name is that, right? But, but I read about them and I was like, this is amazing. So can I go here? And I think they were just like, whatever, you know, as long as you leave. Yeah, just go anywhere. So I got into boarding school for 11th and 12th grade. I went to Choate Rosemary Hall in Connecticut from the cult. I still lived there. And when everybody went home for you holidays, went back to the cult. I went back to the cult, but because it was communal. Did you describe it to your friends at Choate? Like, oh yeah, I live in this cult in Montana? No, and, and that's actually the key thing. Nobody knew. Nobody knew because for the first time in my life, I had the dignity of privacy. I didn't have to tell anybody, right? I, I can't describe to you how empowering it is. Just the freedom to be yourself, to have your own thoughts, to not feel like you're surveilled. Um, it, it, it was like, uh, honestly, it was like water on a plant for me. I, I so bloomed under that environment. And high school was hard. High school was hard for everybody. It was very hard for me. I had never heard of any of these bands or the music. I couldn't get any girls. Like, it was not, if you looked at my Choate experience, you wouldn't say that it was great from, you know, any kind of ideal perspective. But for me, it was so freeing. Specifically, the ability to decide who and what I, who I was going to be and what I was going to do. And, and I feel like I've really milked that. I, I've lived this indulgent life ever since then. But I, but I never forgot, and I have never forgotten that notion that you, that privacy is about freedom from an, another entity exerting power over you, right? In the same way that a bully doesn't mug you for the money, they mug you for the flex, right? In like elementary school, surveillance isn't actually about the information. It's about the exertion of power. And what you get when you get privacy is you get freedom from someone else exerting that power over you. And, and that is when you can finally kind of live your fullest life. And I, and I, because I lived, grew up this way, 
I never had any sense of what a conventional career would be like, and so I did a lot of great things. I went to school, I went to grad school, I raced bikes, I, I wrote and directed a movie. Yeah, we're going to get into that in a second. Okay, yeah. um, okay I won't get ahead. If you... No, no, just, just the movie part. I was, was going to close with that. Does the cult still exist? So uh, uh, she, it turns out that she had dementia, um, and, and so that makes you want to rewind the clock. Like, how far back were we following? Right, right? before you went to Montana, <laughs> right. Um, and so she passed away, of course, like, you know, any good human dynamic, regardless of cult or not. There's, there's questions about who's the successor, multiple kind of offshoots. And so I think that there are people still fighting that fight. But and they're still in Montana? Uh, I think, yes, and I think they've branched. Um, so, right, so the, the, I know we're way over time here, but I, I can't let you go without asking about this. So, you know, you have this, like you said, kind of really crazy life, right? You grow up in a cult, then you end up at Choate and Stanford and all these incredible schools. You know, you're a startup founder now with, I think, a radical idea that I think is going to work. Um, and then in between, you do these other things. Um, you made a movie. It's not just you made a movie. You went to NYU Film School and made a movie with Sarah Silverman and Steve Buscemi. How did that happen, and what was the movie, and why aren't you still making movies? Yeah, okay. So uh, after grad school, I didn't know what I was going to do, but the internet was taking off. And as creative and wonderful as Web3 sounds, like Web1, they didn't even know it was Web1. It was just this an, an immensely creative time. The nerds were cool for the first time. It was really great. But then after that crash, we didn't know there was going to be another internet. It was over. There was an, and, and so there was this opportunity to figure out well, what do I do now? When I was in the cult, uh, movies just meant, I don't want to, you know, movies mean a lot to people, but I will just say it was my one tether to reality. It was the way I learned how other people, John Hughes for me was like the map of what it meant Did, to be. Were you able to watch movies when you were in the, in the cult? Yes. PG movies, or well, mainly G, sometimes PG. But wait, they let you watch John Hughes movies? What? No, 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 I'm getting to that. Okay. But, but, but like any surveillance, right? Like uh, if you're going to, I think I was a, a born hacker, right? You have to hack any system if you want freedom from it. So uh, we would buy tickets to one and then sneak out. I mean, we had the whole routine, right? We would make sure we had the ticket stubs. We would yep. cover our tracks because there was this instant audit, right? So we would just buy tickets to whatever movie we were supposed to and then find a way to get into the... 16 the Candles or... Yeah, Splash. And was, so what was your movie about? Uh, it was about... Uh, it was a buddy movie about insurance adjusters... Uh, uncovering a fraud, um, and it was it was. We need the title, please. It's Saint John of Las Vegas, uh, and but what it was, it was an adaption for me. I don't want to say adaption. It was inspired by Dante's Inferno because I remember reading Dante, and for all of the kind of three act structure, I remember Dante was just this weird journey of this man going to talk to these tragic people and hearing their stories, and and. And I did a little work in auto insurance, making software for auto insurance companies and listening to these adjusters and hearing the characters and the nature of the fraud. It was so eccentric and weird, but in a wonderful way and the kind of things that are just marginal stories that you never hear. So I thought a person investigating uh, an insurance fraud would be a wonderful way to just meet eccentric characters and talk to them. We, we, have, uh, we have a guy who's uh, like a... Uh, he, he, Part of, part of the crime involved a guy uh, called Smitty the Flame Lord uh, who, who works in a carnival and he got stuck in a fire suit and they have to interview him for the crime but he, uh, 
but his his the the regulator gets stuck, so he constantly keeps burning and uh, bur like bursting into flames while they're trying to talk to him. Yeah, I hate when that happens. Yeah. So to answer your question, though, right? So I love the movie, and it got theatrical release. It played in the Angelica. I went to every show. Listen, it sounds like Elmore Leonard kind of. It, it, I, I, it was an amazing experience, and it's not overrated. And anybody who's listening, if you have the chance to make a movie, you should just stop what you're doing and do it. But unfortunately, it neither got good reviews nor made money. And so that was the basic end of my, of your movie of my career. career. All right. Well, yeah. it looks like consumers may be the beneficiary of that. How do people learn more about Friday, sign up? How do they find more about you? Website is myfriday.io. I'm uh, at Hugh Rhodes at Twitter, H-U-E-R-H-O-D-E-S. And the company's uh, Twitter is Own Friday. Cool. Hugh Rhodes, thanks for joining us. Thank you.